The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The book of Hebrews encourages us to think about the Christian life and persevering in faith as a kind of a race, a long-distance race. Many of us are familiar with that section in chapter 12 where we're told that since so many witnesses are surrounding us, we're to run our race with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're to, to put off everything that hinders sin and anything else that slows us down and run our race with perseverance. So I want you to think for a minute here about long-distance races. Any marathoners here today? Half-marathoners, Spartan racers, ultra-marathoners? I ran a 10K at one point, and that's, that's as far as I wanted to go. It was actually farther than I wanted to go. <laughs> but we all know about the Boston Marathon, and maybe you've heard of Heartbreak Hill. It's a long race. It's a hilly course. I just want to read a few comments from some of the people who have run well in the Boston Marathon. Life is like a marathon, they say. It's full of ups and downs that take your breath away. And that's certainly true. One runner said, the last time I ran Boston, I missed, sort of, Heartbreak Hill. I was running along and running along, and I got to Boston College, and I thought, oh, I guess I passed Heartbreak Hill. But there's also the Haunted Mile, which is after Heartbreak Hill, as you're going past Boston College, heading towards Cleveland Circle. I feel like everybody talks about Heartbreak Hill and the other hills, and then you get past it and you realize, well, you have like five more miles to go and you have more hills. Heartbreak Hill is not the last hill, and it's not the end of the race. I think it's around mile point 20. Here's what Lindsay Weagle says. Runners get really excited about hills like Heartbreak Hill at mile 20, and they tackle them with vigor on race day. No one ever talks about the abrupt declines, the running downhill and going under Mass Ave as you enter the city. One person speaks of those downhill stretches as shredding your quadriceps. It's actually harder to run downhill than uphill. And that downhill is the only moment in the course where you can't see or hear the fans because you're surrounded by the cold cement of an underpass. But as you pass through that, you do begin to hear others. And one last one. Kelly Taylor says, once you reach Wellesley Center and Newton, there are spectators screaming and cheering for you along the entire route. It comes as a shock when they disappear for nearly a half mile stretch just after Boston College, when a divider blocks the road and then you pass a cemetery by mile number 21. Persevering the Christian life is a bit like a marathon. I want you to keep that in mind. We'll come back to it in a minute. But for now, the main point of our message today. I'm not very good at this. I'm not as good as Matt is, but here goes. Here's what I think is the main point of this benediction for the ages. The great shepherd equips us and enables us to follow faithfully, even in trials, for his glory. The great shepherd equips us and enables us to follow faithfully, even in trials, 
for his glory. And since I'm not great at this, I'm going to give you one more option. Expect a long, difficult race. Expect to run hard and finish well with God's help. Expect the Christian life to be a long, difficult race, but expect to run hard and to finish well with God's help. So we'll try to think about this benediction under three headings. First, the background of the benediction, where we'll look a little bit at the context of Hebrews and what's leading up to those verses. Then we'll look at the benediction itself. So the background, the benediction, and then finally, bringing the benediction to others. Let's bring it, this benediction, to one another. So first, the background. The book of Hebrews seems to have been a sermon. We're not really sure who wrote it. Likely written to some people in Rome, possibly more than likely formerly Jewish believers who had experienced a variety of persecutions. The author says at the end of our, at the end of the book in verse 22, I urge you to bear with me my word of exhortation for I've written you only a short letter. This sermon takes about 45 minutes to read if it were a sermon uh, and likely it was a message written to these believers in Rome who were being tempted to give up on Christ and go back into Judaism also experiencing persecution of various kinds. We're told that some of their members had been imprisoned, that they had lost their possessions, they had had their material goods confiscated from them. And so they were facing temptations from without, persecution maybe from neighbors, friends, perhaps even family members, maybe even the government. But there was also internal opposition that they were facing. And you can't help but notice this as you read through the book, that some of them were flagging in zeal. It was difficult. They were losing their enthusiasm for this race called the Christian life. They were discouraged. It was hard to meet with other people, so they had given up, some of them, meeting with one another. When a brother or sister had been put in prison, they, they didn't take food to them or shelter, clothing, anything. They were afraid to do that. So internally, there was fear there was despair, and, and even it seems there might have been strife and conflict among the Hebrew Christians in their churches, that they weren't uh, necessarily living at peace with one another. And, and certainly, though I'm not going to talk about it much today, there was some theological confusion that was creeping into the lives of some of these believers. Wondering about Moses, he's, you know, the father of, of the Jews. Maybe there's something Moses can contribute to this that Jesus can't. Or, or maybe uh, Joshua or, or the priests in the temple. Uh, maybe Jesus hasn't actually done everything that we need for forgiveness of sins and life and perseverance and a relationship with our Heavenly Father and the hope of heaven. So there was... More than likely some confusion about that. But we're not going to talk about that much today. We're going to focus on some other things. What I want us to realize is these Christians to whom the book of Hebrews were, was, was writing faced all sorts of difficulties. Sometimes we think our day is difficult. Uh, there's opposition coming. Aaron Wren, some of you know who he is, has talked about we now live in the negative world. There was the positive world when in this country at least, Christians being a Christian actually might help you at work, might get you a loan that a non-Christian might not get. Uh, then there was the neutral world when, ah, eh, Christians, non-Christians, everybody's the same. 
And now Aaron Wren, whether you agree with him or not, is saying, no, no, now we live in the negative world here in the West, and there's hostility towards Christianity and Christ. Now that may or may not be true, but what is certainly true is that the Hebrew Christians did live in a negative world, and there was hostility towards them. They faced persecution at every point. So it was difficult for them to remain faithful in the negative world. It was a neutral world. It wasn't a positive world. Back to the marathon idea. I like to think that living in the negative world as a follower of Jesus is like running the marathon with a few twists. Somebody's chucking marbles out there on the road so that you'll slip and fall and trip or maybe give up. Or when you go under the overpass, people are throwing trash on you, trying to get you to quit and give up. You're not just running the race in a neutral or positive world. You're running it in a negative world where uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, historically the three main enemies that we face, are all working against you, trying to keep you from finishing the race. One more thing about the background before we look at the benediction. If you look at the very first two uh, verses of Hebrews, something really important is mentioned there. And I'm going to call this living between the times. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. Now, that's all the Old Testament prophets. At many times and in various ways. But in these last days, that's what I'm going to try to explain is living between the times. Between when Jesus has come, lived the perfect life, died in our place, risen, taught the disciples, and ascended into heaven, sent the Spirit in Pentecost, until he returns again, those are, I believe, what the Bible says, the last days, or living between the times. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful, powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So at the very beginning of the book, we are told Jesus has provided purification for the sins of his people and he's actually seated at the right hand ruling over everything. That's living between the times. He has not yet come back the second time. So we're between his first coming and his second coming, living, at least the Hebrew Christians, in a negative world. And for some of us, we may feel like we already live in that kind of a world as well, where people are opposing us, or at the very least, the world, the flesh, and the devil seem out to get us. Real quickly, the world, when I say the world is an enemy of Christians, keeping us, trying to, to throw us off balance, keep us from finishing our race, to sin, to rebel against God. I don't mean creation in general. And the Bible uses the word world in different ways. And what I mean when I say the world is one of the enemies of our soul, I mean all those systems, all the collections of influences that are actually ruled by the devil himself that are opposed to God and working against us as Christians. And that's not everything in the world, but it's some things in the world. Our flesh, I don't mean like this stuff, our skin, our, by, by flesh being our enemy, I mean our desires that are not pure and holy and right. 
the intentions that we still have as sinful human beings to think the wrong things, to do the wrong things, to say the wrong things. Those are, that's what I mean by the flesh. Historically, that's what that meant. It's our, our, our desires that are warring against our soul, the desires to disobey God, the desires not to obey, the desires to hate our enemies instead of love our enemies. That's the flesh. And of course, I think we know the devil is Satan himself. And he's behind this, the world systems that are at work trying to keep us from finishing the race and trying to put an end to uh, the church of Jesus Christ. So that's the background. Um, let's look at the benediction or the prayer proper in verses 20 and 21. Let me just read it again, and then we'll look at the various pieces. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you were to scan or skim the verses that come in, in chapter 12 and chapter 13, you would find that after explaining why Christ is greater than Moses, Joshua, the angels, the high priest, the only perfect high priest, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and the priest who offers it to God. Starting with verse 12, really verse, uh, chapter 11 and 12, we see a bunch of commands, a bunch of imperatives. I'm not going to read them all. I'll mention them in a few minutes. But they, they're, they're difficult instructions that come to the Hebrew Christians. Instructions about contentment, instructions about avoiding all sexual immorality, about being generous and sharing, about uh, honoring the leaders and the authorities in our lives, uh, offering continually a sacrifice of praise. And then he gives this, this benediction. I want to pull it apart and think about it for a minute. He says, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the God of peace, reminds us when we pray this, that our God alone can bring peace, and that he's brought peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the reconciling God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, making Christ to be sin so that we might be his righteousness. And, and I can't help but wonder if this particular benediction were not chosen because there was some strife among the believers there. They weren't necessarily loving one another as brothers. And so the fittingly chosen title here, the God of peace. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. I'm going to repeat it any number of times, so maybe you'll get it memorized by the time we are finished looking at this. Hebrews 12 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. And then here we see the God of peace. That's how the benediction starts. Now, a benediction is both a blessing and a prayer. And we can see the blessing and the prayer here. Benedictions often come at the end of a service. The pastor or others offer the benediction. But in fact, according to Peter in the New Testament, all of us are 
priest before God. We are a holy priesthood, a royal nation. And we can use benedictions like this to bless one another and to remind one another, to encourage one another of God's power and presence, his enabling power in our lives. So it starts with the God of peace. And there's an interesting statement. Who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Now imagine that you are one of the Christians to whom the author is writing. You have friends in prison, maybe on death row. Perhaps you've lost uh, a church leader. I don't know if you know this, but most of the places around the world where there's persecution of churches, who do you think are the main targets? The church leaders. They wrestle them up, throw them in jail, sometimes kill them. How encouraging would it have been to you if you were concerned about what's going to happen to me or my leaders to know that the great shepherd of the sheep has been brought back from the dead? He's not dead. And if we are united with him, we also will be with him in glory. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, it says, he brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Now, the blood of the eternal covenant is an interesting phrase. Everyone's pretty sure that it's the blood that's in, in view there is the blood that Christ shed on the cross in the place of sinners, absorbing the wrath of God. When he died in the place of all who would believe in him, he shed his blood. But Hebrews also tells us that it, it seems like even that, that, that blood was taken into the heavenly holy of holies where he presented himself after he was raised from the dead by accomplishing God's purposes and redeeming all the people, justly paying the penalty. The reward was being raised from the dead and brought into the presence of God where he's seated at the right hand. Remember how we started? After he had provided purification for sins through his blood, the blood of the eternal covenant, he was raised and has sat down at the Father's right hand. But what is this eternal covenant? It's a tricky phrase. It's an unusual one. It's not really used often in Scripture. We know old covenant. We know new covenant. So is this blood of the eternal covenant the new covenant? Or is it an eternal covenant? Or is that the same thing? Let me try to give some options and suggest what I think might be the case. Certainly it includes the new covenant, right? We know that. That's what the book of Hebrews is largely about, how Christ has come to fulfill the law and the blood that Christ shed. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. So certainly it is that. But there are those who argue, and I think it's reasonably persuasive, that perhaps what this benediction has in mind is the eternal covenant of redemption whereby the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit before the world was ever even conceived or made, maybe just made, agreed to accomplish redemption for all those who would be God's people. The Father agreeing with the Son, agreeing with the Holy Spirit that when the world was created, he would rescue for himself a people of his very own who would populate the new heavens and the earth so that those people could dwell with him forever. Charles Spurgeon has an interesting way of, of putting things, and he seems to think that's what this was. 
which would, of course, include the new covenant, right? If God made this eternal plan before he even created the world, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit agreeing, then, of course, the old covenant, and of course, the new covenant fits into that. But this bigger, eternal, everlasting, with no beginning and end kind of covenant may be in mind. Here's what Spurgeon says as he tries to put words into the mouth of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Just imagine for a minute having this planning council. I, the Most High Yahweh, do hereby give unto my one and only beloved Son and elect people, countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall be by him washed for sin, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing to be my holy people among whom I will dwell forever. I covenant by oath and swear by myself because I can swear by no greater that these elect people whom I now give to Christ shall forever be the objects of my eternal love. I will forgive them through the merits of your shed blood, O Christ, and give them a perfect righteousness. And these I will adopt and make my sons and daughters. And these shall reign with me through you, Christ, eternally. And then the Holy Spirit says, I hereby covenant that all whom the Father gives to the Son, I will in due time make alive. I will show them their need of redemption. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them. And they shall be preserved at last spotless and faultless. And then Christ, the second person of the Trinity, declares in covenants with his Father, my Father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man and be born of a woman. I will live in their wretched world, and for my people I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness acceptable to your just and holy law. In due time I will bear the sins of all my people. I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will suffer all that they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of thy law. The cup full of your wrath, I will drink it dry. I will then rise again, appear to them and teach them. And then I will ascend into heaven where I will intercede for them at thy right hand. And I will make myself responsible for every one of them. That not one of those whom thou hast given me shall ever be lost. But I will bring all my sheep of whom by thy blood thou hast constituted me the shepherd. I will bring everyone safe to thee at last. Not a one shall be lost. Now whether this is referring to that or not, I think it's, Spurgeon was on to something there. Certainly we, know, certainly we know that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit work together to accomplish redemption for God's people. The point is, the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. The point is, in this covenant, that is how our Christ, great shepherd, he is brought back from the dead as part of that covenant to show that he has fulfilled his mission and is seated at the Father's right hand. If you read through Hebrews, you'll notice that though the resurrection is not mentioned in Hebrews in another place, Again and again, we find the author of Hebrews saying that Christ entered into the Holy of Holies, that he went into the true temple, the true tabernacle. 
all of those things assume that Christ has been raised and ascended and is actually at the Father's right hand. And so in ascending, he is enthroned as king and Lord, but also the eternal high priest. And we often think of Jesus reigning, and he does reign, but he's also the eternal high priest. And as Matt reminded us a couple of weeks ago, always intercedes for us. Imagine that one. I gave the blood of the eternal covenant for that one, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. They're mine. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I've paid it all for that one and that one and that one and that one and that one. It's a great encouragement to, I believe, these Hebrew Christians who maybe were flagging in zeal. They were discouraged. They began to despair, maybe perhaps of their own sins, to be reminded that the great shepherd of the sheep has been brought back from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant. Let's focus on the great shepherd of the sheep for a minute. You probably know this, but in the Old Testament, shepherds were not just those who took care of the flock. It was also a metaphor, an image, a picture of rulers and kings. Even uh, the pagan rulers in the ancient Near East would call themselves shepherds because they would think, I'm a good shepherd. I pasture my sheep. I take care of them. I'm a benevolent ruler. And so when, when we read this great shepherd of the sheep, we ought to think of shepherd as in pasturing, but also as king and ruler. That when Christ went into, uh, was ascended and sat at the Father's right hand, it was as a shepherd who cares, but also as king. He was enthroned as the great shepherd. He is the ruler we all need. He is the king that everyone needs. He is also, of course, the shepherd who cares for us. The shepherds in the Old Testament were um, some good and some bad. But by the time we get to the book of Ezekiel, <clears throat> we hear the prophet saying, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince upon them. I, the Lord, has spoken. So throughout the Old Testament, we see God explaining through the prophets that there's coming a better shepherd, a greater king after David, a great shepherd of the sheep, a ruler king like Jesus. And that's who we read of here. The great shepherd of the sheep. And I know our brother Garrett will explain more of that from Psalm 23 tonight, but I can't help but believe as this benediction was read and as we pray it that we wouldn't be reminded of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And he goes on to talk about him chasing after us. His goodness and mercy will pursue us all the days of our lives and we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever, it says. The author reminds us that this is the great shepherd who died but was raised and he always lives to intercede for his people. But there's something I haven't really mentioned yet. The book of Hebrews also contains some warnings. And those of you familiar with the book know that. Warnings about the dangers of turning away from Christ or even adding, attempting to add anything to what Christ has done. The dangers of going back to Judaism instead of believing in the one true and living high priest. These are sharp warnings and they're warnings that are intended to awaken, if you will, the faith of those who are, are wandering. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. 
but they're warnings that work to cause God's people to return to him or to continue on in faith for those who are his own. And one way to understand the book of Hebrews and these warnings would be like this. There may have been some in that time, that negative world, when there was persecution and difficulty, internal and external struggle, who wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But they did not want to follow the great shepherd. And those two things go together. You will not dwell in the house of the Lord forever unless you follow the great shepherd unto the very end. And I don't know, there may be some here today that are not following the great shepherd. Of course, it's Jesus the Christ. Following your own desires or maybe just wondering if somehow you can slide on through or pretend that you're a Christian. Or maybe you're not interested in Christianity at all. Uh, the Bible would say that there is only one great shepherd. He gave his life, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death we deserve. That's what the blood of the eternal covenant is saying. Christ stood in the place of all the sinners who would believe in him and follow him and experience the punishment that was due them so that they might know the fellowship with God, the peace with God that comes through his righteousness. And that same Jesus invites us to follow him to the very end. So if you're one of those people that maybe is thinking, you know, dwelling in the house of the Lord forever sounds good, but following Jesus, I don't know. The Bible doesn't have a category for you. Sorry to say. Um, but this benediction should encourage us that even when life is hard and challenging, Jesus says, anyone... Who wants to follow me, let him first take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. This benediction helps us persevere when life is difficult, when we live in that negative world, to keep going. And let's keep going. May this God of peace, who brought back from the dead, uh, excuse me, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And then notice the shift in pronouns. And may he work in us. May he equip you and work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. At this point, I want to invite you to look back at the statement on sanctification. It's in your service guides on page four. I want you to focus on just the last two lines. Maybe it's the last line. Sebastian did a great job of explaining that our justification is once and for all. It's punctiliar. It happens. It's done. And there's nothing we contribute to that. It's over. Like we're justified by faith in Christ. But our sanctification is a process. It's an ongoing process. And J.I. Packer says, though some people would stumble at this word, they ought not, that our sanctification is a cooperative process where we lean into the grace that God provides, but we have to act. And that's what we have here. Look, while growth in holiness is a gift of grace, may the great shepherd equip you and work in you. It requires believers to actively and persistently fight sin through means such as reading and hearing God's word, self-examination, self-denial. That's not fun. 
and the mutual edification of Christian community. So the word cooperation isn't there, cooperative effort, but that's the idea. It's a, it's a gift of God. That's what this benediction is about. May God do this work in us as we work. See that? May he equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him. Remember what the Apostle Paul said. He talks about, yeah, I was working, but it wasn't I. It was God in me. Well, which was it? It was God working in him as he worked. And so we need to remember this as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this benediction is it's a very helpful way to pray for one another. We pray that God would give us the energy. He'd equip us, give us the power because we've already been pardoned. Justification is our pardoning. In sanctification, we need God's enabling grace and power to persevere, to keep going, to put to death sin in our lives, to resist the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. May the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, this is what Paul says exactly. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Hmm. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I worked harder than all these other people, but it was the grace of God in me. That's a great way to think about sanctification. And I believe that's what this benediction prayer is urging upon us. That we pray that God would give people the desire, the energy, the strength, equip them with everything, but also pray that they would take the necessary steps and effort and work and strive and persevere and keep going and doing in order to obey our great God. You see the difference between pardon and power? Like we are pardoned only because of what God has done for us in Christ. We are justified freely by faith. Here's where sometimes the solas, those of you who know these five solas, by grace alone, through faith alone, that's talking about our, our justification. You, it's, it's, there's something we have to do with God's help in order to persevere in our sanctification. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. How does that exactly work? I don't know. But I do hear scripture saying, God, you've got to quit me and I've got to keep going. Both of those things together in a cooperative way. That's why this benediction, I think, is so helpful for us. And then how does it happen through Jesus Christ? to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's because of our union with Christ that we're even able to have these conversations about persevering in faith. When we believe we are united with Christ and we keep working on that communion with him until the very end saying, Lord Jesus, I can't, but you can help me. And then I can because you helped me. This is really hard. Please help me. Oh, you did help me. So I was able to persevere. It's a mystery we can't fully understand. But the benediction points us in the right place. So that's the benediction. Now let's talk about bringing it. Okay, let's bring this benediction to work, to school, to our meal times, to our corporate gatherings, small or large, as a church. 
I think what we can do with this benediction is personalize it, customize it. It's not hard to memorize, but better would be to personalize and customize it and bring it. Playing on that word a little bit too. So we need to bring the benediction. Then we need to bring our efforts as well. We bring God's power and we bring our effort. So a couple of weeks ago, Matt mentioned Johnny Erickson. She is uh, confined to a wheelchair and has been, I think, for 50 years. Uh, just a very godly, saintly woman. She's uh, wrote an article that I just want to share with you, and then we'll build on that, and then we will finish here in a minute. She says this. First of all, you understand that every day it's painful for her even just to get up, Okay. And she has uh, nurses that wait on her and help her. She says, I'm sure you'd agree that suffering naturally contains the seeds of complaining. But when cultivated by the Spirit of God, suffering yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's Hebrews. (laughs) Hebrews 12, 11. Suffering yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And interestingly enough, the Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered it's very interesting worth meditating on anyway she says in the early morning hours when her christian sisters would come to get her out of bed and get her ready she remember she can't brush her teeth or fix her hair she needs help and she's experiencing pain like she does every day of her life she says sometimes i can hear them in the kitchen getting things ready and i think lord i'm in enormous pain I am suffering. I think, Lord, I, I, I have no strength for this day, let, al- let alone to be pleasant to these dear helpers. I have no smile for them, but you do. So please let me borrow your smile. I think she's praying this benediction in her own words. She's personalizing it, isn't she? Lord, equip me to, to be pleasant to these people that are here to serve me. Work in me what is well-pleasing in your sight. Let me borrow your smile. So let's think about some ways we might personalize it similarly. Children. You know, sibling rivalry is not something that we should aim for. Uh, You know, brothers and sisters are supposed to love each other, not not always fight with each other. Uh, So children, when it's hard for you to love your brother or sister because maybe they've done something that irritates you or offends you, maybe they've done it a long time, all day. Great shepherd of the sheep, would you, can I borrow your patience? Can I borrow your love? Can I borrow a kind word? I want to love my brother or sister. I need help. I want to do it, but I need your help to do it. Maybe you're not able to pay the bills on time every week. Or maybe you have more than you need and you're trying to figure out what to do with the extra. And Hebrews says, don't forget to be good, and to do good and to be generous and willing to share. Uh, Jesus, could I borrow some of your generosity today? I don't feel it. As a matter of fact, I don't even know how I'm going to pay the bills. But I think maybe you want me to be generous. Could I borrow some of that today? If only I had this, I would be content. We just had Valentine's Day, and maybe for yet another year, there was no Valentine for you. 
Is there anything you could borrow from Jesus? Any way this benediction might work for you in that situation? Lord Jesus, could I borrow your contentment today and a few more days? Or maybe, as the people in this negative world we're experiencing, you are shamed because you're a follower of Jesus. Your friends don't want you around. Your boss looks at you funny. Maybe even you have a family member that holds you at arm's length. You're experiencing disgrace and shame because you're a follower of Jesus. Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. I don't know how you'd make that a prayer. Lord Jesus, give me your despision of shame. (laughs) I don't know what the word is, but help me, Jesus. Can I borrow some of that diffidence or whatever towards shame so that I can love others better and carry on in my life? And there's lots of ways we can personalize this. And it's not just for us to use individually. Remember the marathon runners? What was the hardest part of the race? When they felt alone. There's nobody to cheer them on. Just silence. Passing the cemetery. And here this says, equip you. So I think the author has in mind speaking this kind of benediction. We can speak this benediction prayer to each other. So think about when you're having your meal times together or when someone brings you a trouble or you know someone is, is struggling. They really want to be done with this particular sin or challenge. This is a great uh, prayer to offer them. Say, well, let's, let's turn to Hebrews 20. May I pray this for you? What do you need to borrow from Jesus? Equipment, right? That's, I, I think it's safe to talk about it this way because he says, let him equip you with everything good for doing as well. So what equipment do you need from Jesus in order to live the life that he needs you to live right now? He's more than ready to give it to you. We just need to ask. I mean, many times we don't have because we do not ask. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. You read through scripture and see what's pleasing to him. One of the things that's most, I think, encouraging to me It says in verse 21, may the God of peace, and we'll skip the rest, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Jesus talks about being the great shepherd, a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But a little bit earlier in John, do you know what he says? He says in John 6, this is the will of my Father, that I shall lose none of those who are given to me. So when we pray this prayer that people would persevere and do the Father's will, it's that none of his sheep would be lost. None of them, not a one, no one can snatch even a one out of his hand. How how do we participate in that? By praying these things for one another. By helping one another persevere in faith. So, Whether or not we live in a negative world, our situation is a little different from the author or the listeners to Hebrews. But we do face this challenge between the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we do get discouraged sometimes. And we do all need to borrow something from Jesus. So may we use this prayer to help ourselves and to help others get what we need 
in this race that's long and hard and difficult in the midst of trials so that we finish well. And then as it says, this is all to the glory of our great God. Unto him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven and Lord Jesus, you who are the great shepherd, we need you every hour, every hour, every day, every month, every year we need you. Teach us uh, to, to come to you with open arms and open hands just to receive all that you have for us. Would you help us to pray this benediction prayer for ourselves and others? not for our own glory, but for yours. Help us to customize it, personalize it. Help us to to seek you for the things we need so that we can run our race with perseverance. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.